Welcome to this, the third series of our Ghost Lights podcasts. This season, we'll be talking to some brilliant young changemakers who are challenging the system, asking questions of established leaders, and already making huge contributions in their bid to make the world a better place. My guest today in this last podcast of the series is Bryce Goodman. Bryce is one of those Renaissance figures, a technologist, philosopher and strategist working at the intersection of emerging tech and global challenges. Currently, he's Chief Strategist for AI and Machine Learning at the US Department of Defense's Innovation Unit. Welcome, Bryce. It's lovely to have you on the show. You're out there in California, I gather. I am indeed. It's a beautiful sunny (laughs) day in February. I feel very lucky. Well, I, I, I do want to talk about I, what your particular interest is, that, that intersection between ethics and the use of emerging technologies. But if I can, I, I'd like to begin with you and, and people like you. One of the things that fascinates me is, are you a rare breed or are there lots of ethicists and philosophers uh, and people like you in the boardrooms of the big tech companies and big corporates pondering on the implications of these fast-moving technologies, or, or are you a, a rare bird? A rare bird or odd bird, uh, one, one of the two. In short, there's increased interest and attention at all levels on these issues that occur at the intersection of society and emerging technologies, call it. Uh, so one project that that we worked on recently at the Contellus Group was with the Business Roundtable coming up with a sort of AI roadmap. And this was an exercise that was being conducted by the corporate community. Business Roundtable comprises the CEOs of a bunch of really large companies. But at its core, there was quite a lot of philosophical discussion. And so it was it was interesting to see uh, especially as somebody who you know, studied philosophy as an undergraduate and uh, was always told that, that my degree was uh, going to be you know, fairly useless when it came to employment. It was, it was interesting to see that whilst it may not be labeled explicitly as philosophical or, or even ethical questions, a lot of the content of these discussions definitely fell into that. So to answer your question, do I see a world in which there are tons of self-identifying philosophers within corporate boardrooms? Not necessarily, but do I see corporate boardrooms increasingly engaging in philosophical discussions, whether or not they're called that? Absolutely. Uh, And I think that that is, by and large, a a positive trend. Yeah, that sounds really encouraging, actually, to hear that. And if I could just stay with, I know, Cantalas, you're, you're advising corporates, advising chief executives who are personally responsible for the AI that they use and helping them to think about the sort of appropriate governance around their technologies. I mean, where do they need most help in your view? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think just to take a step back, it sort of depends upon what you think the role or objective of responsible sort of AI or, or in general responsible technology discourse and programs ought to be about. Uh, so there's one view which would say that we are trying to maximize benefits for society and and that's you know what the role of the 
the ethics committee or, or a group like Contellus is, is trying to achieve. And, you know, whilst I think nobody would disagree that, that we would like to see the benefits of this technology maximized and, and more equitably distributed, I think that a lot of what gets more traction is focusing explicitly on what are things that we don't want to have happen. Uh, I've found in my work that it's much easier to get consensus around things that we all agree would be a bad outcome uh, rather than trying to agree on what we think would be the best outcome. And so to that end, a lot of the work that I see our group doing and also work that I've been doing within the Department of Defense is fairly Socratic in nature in the sense of it's question asking and asking and beginning with fairly open-ended questions, but doing so in a very well-structured way. And this is something that, you know, in a field like artificial intelligence, you know, this is a field where new techniques are emerging out of the research community on an almost weekly basis. And so the, the science of AI is moving incredibly fast, but then you have the, the sort of engineering side of things, which consists of, you know, what are good kind of program management practices, good engineering practices in general, and, and those are not moving at the same pace. Uh, and so I see a lot of the work that we're doing is kind of marrying the technical uh, capabilities uh, with, with business interests and, and social desires, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Absolutely. And I was interested when you just said the sort of Socratic nature of providing a, a structure into which to ask questions. And I think certainly, you know, I'm no expert as you are, but I mean, I think one of the difficult things for business leaders is, is what questions, what are the right questions to ask and when? I mean, I, that's a very broad question, but if I could just put you a little bit more on that sort of Socratic process and, 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 and where, where, where do business leaders begin to, to ask the questions if, even if they don't know the answers? Yeah, so I'll, I'll speak to AI in particular just because that's the field that I work the most in, but I imagine that quite a lot of what I'm saying is more generally applicable as well. So within AI, I think the first thing to ask is, you know, what is it that we're trying to do and can we measure success uh, within that? And will people care if we are successful? So will people care if we are successful and can we afford to fail? Are three questions that I think have to begin uh, any kind of AI project. And a lot of people don't, don't recognize that at the end of the day, uh, when you're dealing with artificial intelligence, you're just dealing with a set of, of mathematical optimization equations, right? And so what that means is as a business leader, can I translate my business objective into a mathematical function that can then be, be maximized? And just to give an example of how these questions that, that I think appear to be, you know, maybe really high level and, you know, more technical than philosophical, how, how they play out in reality. You know, a lot of the sort of worst outcomes that we've seen in the deployment of AI systems, so I'm thinking of biased facial recognition systems or uh, self-driving cars that hit and kill pedestrians, 
have occurred because these these basic questions were never explicitly asked. You know, people maybe operated on a tacit assumption that we all know what it is that we're trying to maximize here. But, you know, if you think of, for example, facial recognition, if you're trying to maximize overall accuracy of your algorithm, then you're going to focus on maximizing performance on whatever the majority demographic is. And so what that means is that an algorithm that, you know, performs incredibly well on the majority of people, but performs incredibly poorly on, on, you know, minority groups, that algorithm is, is, you know, not necessarily going to be penalized for that disparity in performance. And so, you know, this, I give this as an example of where ethical problems like bias uh, or, or unwanted bias actually emerge because of insufficient problem specification. And that's where I think leaders really need to come in, because at the end of the day, they're also the ones that need to navigate the trade-offs uh, that exist within these systems. So again, you know, going down this uh, facial recognition system, you know, do we want a system that is equally accurate across all groups or a system that has the highest overall level of accuracy? that choice is going to drive very different technical decisions. And that's a choice that isn't ultimately a technical choice and is not a choice, in my opinion, that should just be kicked down to the engineering team, uh, but is a choice that, that requires real you know, leadership to get involved in. That's fascinating. And if we could stay with this area of kind of the misuse of AI, <laughs> I mean... You talk about problems needing to be, you know, expressed as algorithms. And yet it seems to me that there are places where AI is straying outside this and being used in some ways to make judgments or to be a moral agent in a way, which goes beyond that. Am I right? And can you speak a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about being a moral agent per se, but I think you know, one thing that's that's interesting is that a lot of the problems that are being encountered now in the deployment of AI. So, for example, you know, AI is increasingly being used in trying to uh, to give prison sentences and and to predict who's likely to you know show up at court and therefore uh, setting bail amounts and things like that. And what we find is that you know these algorithms are good at optimizing with the variables that that they have. But of course, you know, the world contains infinitely an infinite amount of variables and not all of those are going to be measured and recorded. And so as a consequence, you know, these algorithms are only ever kind of able to be as good at capturing the complexity of the world as 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 the complexity of the underlying data uh, that they're trained on. This is something that social scientists have known for 100 plus years. It's not news at all. You know, it's, it's something that anytime you're conducting a social survey, you need to take into account. Uh, but we're seeing these issues crop up in you know, the computer science field. And so one of the things that I think we need to see more of is interdisciplinary collaboration. Um, I think these fields have a lot to learn from one another. And then, you know, within, at a corporate level, you know, I think that engineering teams have a lot to learn from legal teams, which have a lot to learn from product teams and policy teams. And, you know, this idea of the cross-functional team that includes representatives from, from each of these groups, I think really has to be 
the future of of how these products are are built and deployed. I'd love to come back to that, Bryson, when I, I, I have to ask you about your whale project. But just before I do, you know, one of the things that strikes me about what you're doing is not only thinking about the ethics of AI, machine learning and so on, but also thinking about how it can be used most ethically. And one of your projects that's particularly interesting at the Defence Innovation Unit is this prize that you set up to tackle illegal fishing globally. Can you tell us a bit more about it and how it will work and and why you decided to use a a prize, an open source prize, rather than to sort of keep the data and and the innovation for yourselves? So the competition uh, is called XV3. And the objective is to take data that's been collected from satellites. And it's a, a specific sensor called synthetic aperture radar, uh, which is basically you can think of as a, as a space-based radar image, which has special properties. It's able to, to penetrate through clouds and it's able to operate day and night, which obviously is, is hugely advantageous if you're trying to monitor the ocean. Uh, to take this data and to generate algorithms that can identify what are called dark vessels, uh, and dark vessels are are ships that have disabled um, their their automatic identifier system. And these ships aren't necessarily engaged in nefarious activity, but if you're going to engage in nefarious activity, it's probably a good idea that you disable your identifier system. Uh, so there's there's an interest in in doing this kind of identification of dark vessels, you know. And and stepping back, I mean, the ocean you know covers seventy percent of the world's surface. It is the most difficult you know area to patrol by far. There's all sorts of you know horrible things that take place at sea, from you know forced labor and people smuggling to illegal fishing, illegal whaling, etc. And increasingly, there's a lot of geopolitical uh, and sort of national security intersection with the environmental uh, implications. So, for example, you know, overfishing by foreign vessels within you know, regions uh, off the coast of Africa uh, can cause domestic conflict. Or, you know, another recent example, China has a very large fishing fleet that was illegally fishing North Korean waters. Uh, and that has all sorts of geopolitical implications as well as environmental implications. So so we think that this is an area where there's really interesting alignment between the security community and the environmental conservation community. The reason we structured it as, as a prize, one was that we wanted to see what happens when you give access to data that is typically been only accessible to a very small group of specialized uh, researchers the SAR data, what happens when you give this data to a, a, a broad audience of people who have absolutely no background in synthetic aperture radar, who are just simply machine learning AI engineers? Do you get superior performance to what you get when you work with specialists or inferior performance or about the same? Uh, so that was one one thing. And then the other was that we wanted to have a competition where the algorithms would be open source because we want some a system that can that can be easily accessible by not just the US but its partners and allies uh, around the world right because a lot of the most egregious uh, illegal fishing is is occurring in you know other countries and countries that don't necessarily have domestic AI capabilities and i think the final thing the kind of geopolitical gambit here is that 
you know, the United States, we win in a world where the oceans are more transparent and those countries that are violating international law lose in that world. And so even though we are making a capability accessible to, you know, countries like China, for example, the U.S. still benefits on the whole in a world where where there's full transparency and and China, you know, insofar as as they continue to engage in illegal fishing, they you know, do not win in that world, uh, at least not on that front. So those were a lot of the reasons that we that we structured the competition that way. Uh, and the results were phenomenal. I mean, we had, you know, individuals who were able to beat out, you know, massive companies, um, you know, I think the, the top of the top five, um, only one was a, a team of more than one person. Uh, and, and I think that's also just something that's incredibly special to the artificial intelligence community, which is that, you know, you think of other kind of cutting edge science, sciences, like, you know, the biosciences, for example, and to, to do real cutting edge work there, you need access to, massive laboratories, right? Or if you want to, you know, develop quantum computing or or nuclear fusion or any of these other, you know, technologies that are sort of bleeding edge, you really need access to uh, a lot of fixed infrastructure. But but thanks to, you know, cloud computing, you know, anybody provided, you know, you have a credit card uh, on file can can access the resources needed to create, you know, genuinely state of the art results. Uh, and and that's pretty amazing. I can't really think of any other scientific revolution where that's been the case, where there's been that level of democratization in terms of who it is that can be making the real breakthrough discoveries. Really amazing and really inspirational. And just to say, we will put links um, at the bottom of this podcast so that you can see some of the things that Bryce is talking about. Bryce, I mean, my favorite project... <laughs> partly because it's just so delightful that you're involved with is the is the SETI project, which, as you said, that some of the most extraordinary things happen because of interdisciplinary working. And I know here, you know, there's AI, there's robotics, there's marine biology, there are all sorts of disciplines working to try and map the, and I'm probably getting the language wrong here, the speech patterns of, of whales um, in Dominica, and focusing particularly on the interactions between mothers and babies. And the final bit I love about this is, is that the ambition around it is that you may get to the point where you where you can talk back. And, and I sort of feel at the moment so much money is being spent in sort of sending shiny objects up into space. There's something wonderful about really being curious and paying real attention to the world that we already have around us. Tell us about your whales and, and do you know yet what they're saying? <laughs> the short answer no uh but that, that project is led by david gruber who's a, a professor um just an absolutely brilliant scientist and and one of the most passionate people i've ever met in my life he's one of those people where you see that you know he kind of found something as a child that he was passionate about which was the ocean and and has managed to take that childlike curiosity and and turn it into just an absolutely incredible research career uh, and so this this work that he's doing uh, which is funded in part by the Ted Audacious Prize is to place all sorts of different sensor systems around these humpback whales in Dominica 
uh, to really understand at a level of granularity, you know, how the sounds they make correlate with the activities and their biological signs and, and create this incredibly rich data set, uh, which in turn will be handed over to some of the world's leading experts in, in artificial intelligence, in particular in, uh, in language translation to see, you know, can we identify kind of grammatical structures you know, within this language? We already have evidence from other research that different whale colonies have distinctive dialects, that different whales seem to have individually identifiable calls. Uh, and so, you know, this is, I think, a pretty amazing uh, and certainly a very eye-catching example of the application of new sensor and and in particular lower cost sensing technologies um, with artificial intelligence and machine learning. Another set of projects that I'm more directly involved with, uh, we're looking at how do we take and and put hydrophones, which are basically just microphones that, that work underwater, into coral reefs uh, to listen and and detect the presence or absence of certain fish species. And then based on that, we're able to estimate just how healthy that coral reef is. And the reason that's so significant is that right now, if you want to assess the health of a coral reef, you have to send out you know, a, a diver. Uh, and this is incredibly expensive. The diver needs to be you know, specifically trained as a scientific diver. And, and they're only able to do this you know, a few times a year for a given reef. They're only able to cover a small section of it. But we can imagine a, a, a near future in which we've placed, you know, acoustic sensors and, and video sensors around a coral reef ecosystem. And all of a sudden, we're able to, to really understand what's happening. And that, in turn, allows us to understand when we get into different conservation goals, you know, such as trying to plant new coral reef, uh, which is another project I'm involved in. We have a, a sort of baseline that we're able to measure against, uh, and we have a, a high fidelity picture of what's going on. Because that's one of the challenges in the conservation community is, you know, you can do an intervention, but how do you know that that intervention is actually having the outcome that you want? And if you're reliant on manual monitoring, meaning you're sending somebody out into the field or sending somebody out underwater, you're very limited in how often and in what detail you can measure that kind of habitat change. Um, so I'm incredibly excited about this, this future where we're able to take these technologies to just really unlock both scientific questions as well as conservation outcomes. I can hear that excitement in your voice, Bryce, um, and it does sound, you know, fabulously interesting. We're almost out of time, and um, I wonder if we can go from whale babies <laughs> to, I know you've just recently become the father of two fabulous little boys, and I just wanted to take the temperature of your optimism, I suppose, and looking ahead to when they're your age. I mean, will, do you think they'll be living in the metaverse? Will they be using AI to help them to make wiser decisions? Do they, what, what, how, how, how do you see the future um, that your little chaps will be living in when they're, when they're your age in terms of your expertise and uh, particularly AI and machine learning? Yeah, that's something that as a, as a new father, I've been thinking a lot about. You know, I'll say firstly on technology, to me, like technology is, is at its best when it's most invisible. 
I hate having to sit in front of a computer all the time and have no interest in, in doing more of that. And so, you know, when we think of the metaverse, if that means having screens in front of our faces and, and obscuring the, just the natural world, that's, that's a future that I hope never occurs. But it's pretty clear that, that we have engineered this world inadvertently into a place where in our lifetime, at least, we're not going to, to come to an equilibrium without some combination of restraints, meaning we need to stop certain activities that we're engaged in, but also correction, meaning we need to proactively take steps to, to restore, you know, I'm just talking about the environment at this point. And, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic insofar as if we look at history, we have these examples of you know, massive crises. So just to give two examples, one, at the end of the 19th century, there's this absolute terror that the world was going to run out of food because the world was running out of, of basically fertilizer, which at the time was guano, um, you know, bird feces. And that was being shipped all the way from off the coast of Chile to Europe and there was this you know, concern that, that the crop yields were just not able to keep up with population growth. And what happened is that there was this, this brilliant chemist, uh, Fritz Haber, who developed a process to, to pull nitrogen out of the air. And, and you know, this process is still used today and, and I think constitutes something like half the food that we eat is, is the result of this process. This is a story that, you know, think about it in terms of if you were to rank all of the most important inventions in the world, this has to rank near the top. And yet you know, most people don't even know about it. Right. Um, and, and another example is, you know, New York City at the beginning of the 20th century, the New York Times had all of these headlines about how the amount of horse feces on the street was just an, an absolute crisis um, that would you know, never uh, be overcome without drastic political action. And then a few years later, you know, we have the automobile and, and now that looks kind of, you know, quaint in retrospect. I'm not a Pollyannish, you know, techno optimist who believes that we can, you know, wave technology and engineer our way out of everything. But some of these examples do, I think, suggest that humans can surprise themselves. Uh, and I certainly hope that, that we manage to surprise ourselves in a positive way. Uh, at least over the course of, of my children's lifetime. Bryce, that's a great place to end. And thank you so much for joining me. It's been a fascinating conversation. And thank you as well to listening to this last of our Changemaker series. As I said in the middle of the podcast, we will put some links to the projects that Bryce is working on. And we look forward for you to join us in our next series. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tracy.